Good morning. Uh, I'm one of our elders here at Redeemer Community Church. And uh, a couple of months ago, uh, our pastor, lead pastor Mitch Mayer, uh, asked me if I could preach for him this morning. Uh, he uh, knew he was going to be out of town and so asked if I could fill in uh, today. We didn't know at the time that uh, I'd be preaching the morning after the Astros uh, won the World Series. Uh, and so I think it's uh, somewhat providential that it happened that way. I'm a lifelong Astros fan. Uh, my first Astros baseball game, uh, 1966. Sandy Koufax pitching for the Dodgers uh, against the Astros, and uh, I was uh, there at that game, saw the All-Star game and the Astrodome in 1968, uh, and then the last time the Astros played the Phillies in the playoffs, uh, I was there for that game as uh, well, uh, one of those games in 1980. So I go back a long ways with the Astros. I was glad. I'm glad the series is over. I'm uh, not only an Astros fan, but I'm a bit sleep deprived at this point. And uh, thankful, actually thankful last night for the extra hour. I teach high school math and always tell my students on this uh, weekend <clears throat> that they need to start their homework at 1.45 a.m. on Sunday morning. Because then when they finish, it'll be earlier than when they started. And uh, there's something, you know, encouraging about that when you're doing your math homework over the weekend. So in any case, uh, happy about the Astros and happy as well to have the opportunity to uh, share God's word uh, with us this morning. Let me pray for us and then I'll uh, tell us what we're up to today. <clears throat> Father, we're uh, grateful for all that we have in your son, the Lord Jesus, thankful for the mercy that you have shown us in him. Thankful for the forgiveness that we've uh, celebrated already this morning through our singing and through the Lord's Supper. Thankful for the adoption that we have into your family. And we thank you too for your word, uh, that your word uh, reveals who you are to us and reveals who we are to us as well. And I pray for these uh, next few minutes that we have together, <clears throat> that as we uh, hear your word together, that you would speak to us, uh, encourage us where we need that, reprove us where we need that, enlarge our vision of who you are. And uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, speak to us today. I do pray for uh, Mitch and Tara as they're away this weekend that uh, you would encourage them and it'd be a great time for them. And I pray that uh, Mitch would come back refreshed and energized and I just thank you for his ministry here. <clears throat> we commit our time to you this morning and we do pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. battling a bit of a cold this week, so uh, hopefully you can bear with my voice and I'll take a sip of water occasionally. Mitch has been preaching through uh, <clears throat> the book of Revelation. I'm not going to uh, speak out of Revelation today. I'd like you to open your Bibles instead to the book of Daniel. 
Uh, Daniel is an Old Testament book. If you uh, open your Bible up right in the middle, it'll probably open to the book of Psalms and then work your way uh, a few books to the right past uh, the long books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And then after Ezekiel, you'll come to the book of Daniel. So uh, we'll be this morning in Daniel chapter 2. So if you get your Bible open there, you'll be in the right spot. Let me give us just a bit of background about Daniel before uh, we read uh, some of uh, Daniel 2 together. Daniel lived uh, in the 6th and 7th century BC, uh, born uh, probably 620, 625 BC, and then In 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invaded uh, Judah and uh, conquered uh, Judah and uh, the city of Jerusalem in particular and deported a number of Jews, Daniel 1 tells us, back to uh, Babylon, to his capital city, which was several hundred miles away. (coughs) Daniel lives uh, in Babylon for... Uh, probably a period of about seven decades. He lives a long life, and he serves uh, first Babylonian kings and then eventually Persian kings uh, over that 70-year period that runs through most of the 500 uh, B.C. years. All those years, Daniel serves in a pagan, polytheistic society, uh, kings who have conquered Uh, Judah and who don't know anything about the God of Israel and he serves them faithfully and well I'm not going to ask you to turn there but the prophet Jeremiah actually writes a letter to some of the exiles who've been taken to Babylon and in Jeremiah 29 uh, the prophet writes to those exiles and this would have included Daniel seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And so for seven decades, Daniel uh, faithfully serves these pagan kings, first the Babylonians, later uh, the Persians, and he's uh, loyal and uh, influential in high government circles all the time without compromising his uh, relationship with God at all. He is uh, faithful in his obedience to the God of the Old Testament and at the same time uh, faithful in his service to these uh, pagan kings. <clears throat> Our son Travis uh, had the opportunity a few years ago to spend a few months in Central Asia and he tells us that there's actually four different places in Central Asia that claim to have the, the tomb of Daniel. Daniel's so highly thought of in that culture Uh, even to this day, that uh, there are rivals for uh, who actually has his burial place. Uh, But when we come to Daniel 2, uh, Daniel's a young man. He's just been deported to Babylon, and his life is in danger. Uh, You'll see it as we read it here. His life is uh, hanging by a thread. And I want us to see this morning why that happens first and then how Daniel responds. And so what we'll do is we'll take this in two pieces. We're not going to do all of chapter 2 this morning. (coughs) But I'd like us to do the first 30 verses together. And so uh, we'll take it in kind of two chunks. Verses 1 to 13, 
describe the predicament that Daniel is in, and then verses uh, 14 to 30 describe his response uh, to that predicament. So if you've got your Bibles there, uh, let's read verses 1 to 13 together. Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. (coughs) The king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, The command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Okay, so there's the background to our story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, we find out uh, early in his reign, uh, has dreams, and in verse 1 it says his spirit was troubled, he was unable to sleep. I wonder if perhaps uh, these dreams are recurring night after night. It could be that... um, Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams. We don't learn uh, the content of the dream until uh, near the end of the chapter, which we're not going to look at together. It's a statue that uh, he sees there, and he doesn't understand uh, what the meaning of the statue is. And so he calls in his, what we would probably call spiritual advisors. It's quite a a motley collection of individuals there in verse 2, magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, Chaldeans, and, but these would be the people who uh, had some respect in the court. Uh, he brings them in and asks them to tell him not just the interpretation, but actually the dream itself. 
And of course, the reason that he wanted them to recount the dream for him is he knew if he told them the dream, they could just make up anything that they thought would please him and give him that as the interpretation. And he would be no nearer <coughs> uh, knowing the meaning of the dream that he's experienced. I think Nebuchadnezzar really wants to know. I think he has a genuine desire to know the meaning of this statue made of all these various precious metals. Uh, he wants to know what it all means. And so he uh, insists that they tell him not just the interpretation, but the dream itself, because he knows if they tell him the dream itself, he can trust them to have an accurate interpretation. Uh, they, of course, are unable uh, to do that, and so Nebuchadnezzar uh, loses his temper, which Nebuchadnezzar does a lot. If you're familiar uh, with the book of Daniel, there's no half measures with him. Uh, the command for me is firm, verse 5, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. I think that's a little redundant. Uh, if you're torn limb from limb, it may not matter what your houses look like. Verse 12, uh, the king becomes indignant and very furious. And so he is uh, angry that the Chaldeans and his spiritual advisors are unable to help him. And so he gives orders <clears throat> that they all be killed. They all uh, be put to death. And Daniel and his friends are included in this execution order because they're part of this circle of wise men. We read more about this back in chapter 1. I won't take us back there now. But the writer of Daniel lets us know that Daniel and his three uh, Hebrew friends uh, are considered to be part of this group of uh, advisors and wise men around Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel's wife is precarious at this point. We need to really understand that. This is a real threat and his life is uh, in danger. Uh, his situation is, uh, is fragile and he's aware of it. Daniel and his friends uh, understand that there's real danger here. They could well uh, lose their lives. Babylon, uh, not Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's authority there in Babylon is absolute. And if he says that people are to be put to death, uh, they will certainly be put to death. And so <clears throat> as we come to the end of verse 13, a group's been sent out to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. And so I think Daniel understands that at this point, point his life really hangs by a thread and what I want us to do with our time this morning is to focus on Daniel's response so Daniel's in a situation where his life is in danger the king has lost his temper perhaps become a bit unhinged and uh, is going to put all the wise men of Babylon to death Daniel included, and so we read about Daniel's response beginning in verse 14, and we'll read down through verse 30, and this is where we'll uh, camp <clears throat> for the next few minutes. So let's read from uh, verse 14 down to verse 30 together. Then Daniel replied <clears throat> with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, 
For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. <clears throat> Verse 19, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and power even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Then Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, <clears throat> and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, the name the Babylonians had given him, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Okay. So there's several things here I want us to dig into uh, together. I just want you to notice at the very beginning of what we read in verse 14 that our writer tells us that Daniel replied with discretion and discernment. Uh, the writer uses those two words to characterize uh, his response <clears throat> to uh, this predicament, this dangerous situation he's in. Just think about those two words for a minute, discretion and discernment. Uh, discretion and discernment are words we normally use of people who think carefully about what they say, who are wise in their speech, who don't say everything that pops into their heads. And so Daniel uh, responds to the command from the king 
I think with what the Old Testament would call wisdom, uh, the Old Testament uses the word wisdom uh, not to describe so much people who are smart, but people who live life skillfully. Wisdom in the Old Testament is really uh, the idea of navigating the challenges that life brings us uh, according to the principles that we find uh, in God's Word. Now, don't get me wrong, I think Daniel was pretty smart. Uh, if you go back over to <clears throat> chapter 1, verse 4, uh, the writer says that the captives were used in whom uh, was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. I, I think he's smart, but I don't think that's what our writer is after here. It's not his intelligence. It's not, it's not his SAT score that the uh, writer is interested in. It's his wisdom, his ability to navigate uh, the challenges of life according to what uh, he finds in the scriptures. And I think at the, at the foundation of Daniel's wisdom, there are two fundamental things. And it's those two things that I'd like us to latch on to and talk about for just a few minutes this morning. Uh, and then we'll uh, wrap this up and hopefully connect it uh, to where we live. So two foundations to Daniel's wisdom revealed here in this passage. One of those is that Daniel exhibits great confidence in God. Daniel's very confident in God. He goes to God and he asks that God would reveal the details of a dream that another person has had. There's no way that you could know the details of what another person dreamed. And so Daniel's going to God and he's asking him to make those details uh, known to him. And he does it not alone. He does it by going to his friends and asking his friends to pray uh, with him. So look at, uh, look, if you will, <clears throat> at verses 17 and 18 with me there in chapter 2. The writer tells us, Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know those as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the uh, Babylonian names they were given. But notice the phrase in verse 18, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven. They're asking God to be compassionate to them and to spare their lives. And compassion really has the idea of uh, kindness that's not deserved. And so what Daniel and his friends are asking is that even though they don't deserve it, God would spare their lives by revealing uh, not only the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, but the meaning uh, of that dream. And then when God answers their prayer and does, in fact, in verse 19, show Daniel uh, both the vision and the meaning of it, Look at Daniel's prayer of praise. It, it picks up there in verse 20 and just catch the, the things that Daniel understands about uh, who God is. Verse 20, wisdom and power belong to him. Uh, verse 21, it is he who changes the times and the epics. Daniel's God is in charge of history. He's the one that orders all the affairs of history. Uh, right after that in verse 21, he removes kings and establishes kings. There's never been a ruler anywhere in the world who God didn't establish. And there's never been a ruler uh, anywhere in the world who was removed, whom God didn't remove. Think for a minute, if you will, of your favorite U.S. president. Get that person uh, in their mind. I don't need to hear their name out loud. 
but uh, think about who that person is. That person served as U.S. president because God put them in that position. Now think of your least favorite U.S. president, the person who most of all you wished had never become president. That person became president for the same reason, because God put them in office. He establishes kings, and he uh, removes kings, and Daniel understands that. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge uh, to men of understanding. Verse 22, it is he who reveals profound and hidden things. Daniel's God, nothing's hidden from him. He knows everything. He knows what's in the darkness, <clears throat> and he's able to uh, reveal it uh, as it suits his purposes. So Daniel has a big view of God. His God is big. He's powerful. He's wise. He's uh, sovereign over the affairs of history. And uh, when Daniel praises God for who he is, he recognizes God's ability and his power. And he goes on in verse 23 to not just praise God, but to thank him, to thank him for the specific thing that he's done on Daniel's behalf. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we requested of you. And so he thanks him for this specific uh, revelation of the dream that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has had. So Daniel's got great confidence in God. God. Daniel's God is big and he's powerful and he's able to do, uh, as Paul puts it over in Ephesians, uh, far more exceedingly than anything that we could ask or think. The second piece of that, though, is that Daniel is very humble about himself. He's got great confidence in God, but he doesn't make much of himself. And you see that in a couple of ways here. Uh, pick up the story in verse 26 with me. <clears throat> the king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Now here's a golden opportunity for Daniel to advance his own cause. He's got a chance here to make himself look really good uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's eyes. I don't know if you caught it, but our boy Arioch there in verse 25, uh, I think does a little bit of that very thing. Look at Arioch in verse 25. Uh, Daniel says, I, I, I need to speak to the king. And Arioch uh, goes to the king and says, I have found a man. I have found a man among the exiles of Judah. And so I think Arioch is trying to get some credit uh, for himself. Daniel doesn't do that. Look at Daniel in verse 26. Are you able to make known to me the dream uh, which I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel's response is, no, no, I can't. Uh, but there's a God in heaven who can. So verse 28, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he is made known. And then Daniel down in verse 30 uh, says to Nebuchadnezzar, as for me, <clears throat> this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man. I think the way to think about that is Daniel refuses to steal God's glory. He's not willing to take credit for something that God has done. He wants to make sure that this pagan king understands that the reason the dream has been revealed is not because of who Daniel is, but because of 
uh, who God is. And we, we see that all through the Bible, this uh, over and over again. There are people, uh, some of the real heroes of the Bible, who refuse to steal God's glory, who refuse to take credit for something God has done. I jotted down two or three of them, just so you wouldn't have to turn there. <clears throat> Way back in the book of Genesis, you remember Pharaoh has dreams about uh, seven fat cows and seven skinny cows, and he calls Joseph in, uh, actually from prison, to interpret the dream for him. And back in Genesis 41, <clears throat> the writer tells us, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it, real similar to Daniel's situation. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me, literally, it is apart from me. It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. He's not willing to take responsibility or credit for something that only God can do. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, it's just right after uh, Pentecost, and they're at the temple, and there's a lame man uh, who's been lame from birth, and the Lord works through Peter and John to heal this individual, and he's walking and jumping around in the temple courts. <clears throat> and Luke tells us in Acts 3, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? It's not us. It's God. It's God who did it. We're not taking credit for this. God should get the glory. And then one more. Paul uh, over in uh, 1 Corinthians <clears throat> writes in chapter uh, verse 15, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So Daniel and Joseph and Peter and Paul, they want to make sure that God gets the credit for uh, what God has done, that they don't steal any of that uh, credit for themselves. And so if I'm, if I'm summarizing, if I'm thinking about the big picture here, I think the foundation of Daniel's wisdom, of the way that he lives his life in this pagan culture with discernment and uh, discretion, as the writer here puts it, is this basic attitude that he has of not me, God. It's not in me. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the understanding to interpret this dream for the king, but God does. He has great confidence in God and uh, <clears throat> limited confidence in himself. He's got uh, humility. We actually talked about this idea in the Sunday school class that I usually teach of not me, uh, God, if, uh, a few months back. One of the brothers in the class, I don't know if Dennis is in the room or not, but Dennis came the next Sunday and gave me this t-shirt that he had had made. Isn't this great? Not me, God. And so he's uh, put it right here on the front of the t-shirt. And so that's our big eye, this, the idea this morning. Not me, God. God's the one who uh, is able and uh, we 
uh, are not able. We bring, there's a, I'm, I poke my head in the youth room over in the mill. I don't know if it's the senior high or the junior high room, but there's a, a little bumper sticker on one of the bulletin boards <coughs> that says, I bring nothing to the table. That's a great sentiment. That's Daniel's understanding. He understands he brings nothing to the table, but God brings everything to the table. He's got great confidence in God and uh, little confidence in himself. And so I asked myself, as I've looked at this passage uh, the last couple of weeks, do I have, do I have a not-me God heart? Do I have a heart that's genuinely not about me, but about God? And I think it varies. You know, there are days when it's one and days when it's the other. But I do think there are two indicators of a heart that's genuinely a not-me God heart. And I want to talk about those two things briefly uh, before we close. One of those two things is that I think a not-me God heart always expresses itself in an active prayer life. I think that prayer is the way not-me God gets expressed, and people who are genuinely not-me God people are going to spend a lot of time crying out to God and asking Him for the wisdom and the grace and the enablement that they know they don't uh, have in themselves. And then when God answers those prayers, they're going to be people who respond like Daniel did with praise <clears throat> and with thanksgiving. Um, Not-me God people understand that God's power is perfected in their weakness, as Paul put it over in 2 Corinthians. And so they're always, uh, or they're, you know, they're consistently looking to God and asking him to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And then the second thing, and we saw both of these things in Daniel, is that not me, God, people give God credit for the things that only God can do. So when people see things in our lives that uh, by God's grace are better than they used to be, things that reflect God's work in us, uh, we don't steal God's glory. We make sure that God gets the credit for those things. And you can, you can you know, think of a million places where that happens in conversations with one another, in conversations with outsiders. Uh, when people notice things in us that God has done, or if we've been able to, uh, by God's grace, serve him in some way that's been a blessing to others, how do we respond when people say something about that to us? Do we make sure that God gets the credit? And sometimes it'll feel kind of awkward, you know? It'll just feel kind of strange to say, well, that's God's grace, or, you know, it, it's just so easy to just let it go. Uh, but it's important that God uh, get the credit. So I'm going to tell you, uh, yeah, I think I have time for this, a quick story uh, where I failed miserably at this, where I uh, had the opportunity to give God the credit, and I didn't. And i tell you the story because I, I want you to catch the flavor of uh, what I'm talking about here. I teach uh, at a private school in Houston, and the bane of the teaching profession is the after-school faculty meeting. What you, what you want never to happen is an after-school faculty meeting. And I, in particular, uh, teach down in Houston and have a commute out here to the west side. And so that means what I want to do is leave 
my place of employment as early as possible. And the, uh, the after-school faculty meeting means I'm gonna have to fight traffic all the way home. So a good number of years ago, we're in one of these after-school faculty meetings and I can feel myself getting uh, less and less patient as the Spanish teacher uh, keeps peppering the administrators with questions, questions that I wasn't interested in the answer to, but I understood were prolonging my commute. And so I'm just sitting there less and less uh, patient and I finally, I finally snap right in front of the faculty and everybody and I say something to her that I shouldn't have, shouldn't have said, I was unkind. That's not the real failure here. Uh, and so <clears throat> I recognized pretty quickly by the time the meeting was over that I'd messed up. And so I went out to the parking lot and I found her and I apologized and told her I was sorry. But then I realized that I had not just messed up in front of her, I'd messed up in front of everybody, right? And so what do you do now? Uh, and I've done this a lot, messed up a lot in front of a lot of people in the teaching profession. Uh, and I end up apologizing to students and classes because things I've said that I shouldn't have said. Uh, this is not ancient history. Uh, the most recent occasion was three days ago in a, in a class <clears throat> that I had after lunch on Thursday. It, it's, uh, it's just kind of a regular thing. Anyway, so what am I going to do about this uh, outburst in the faculty meeting? I sent an email to the whole faculty and said, look, I recognized that I blew it with Claudia. It's okay if you know her name. Uh, I blew it with Claudia this afternoon, and I apologize, and I'm sorry for what I said. And so one of our uh, poor, misguided science teachers, who's not at the school any longer, shoots me an email and says, oh, Matt, that's wonderful. You're so evolved. You're so evolved. So here's an opportunity, right? I've just gotten credit for something that I did by God's grace. Apart from my relationship with Jesus, I would never have thought to apologize to this woman and certainly wouldn't have thought to uh, let the whole faculty know that I had blown it. And now a science teacher is accusing me of being evolved. And how do I respond? Well, what I should have done is emailed her back and I said, no, Jay, Jay's no longer at the school, so it's okay if you know her name. No, Jay, uh, I'm not evolved. I've got a God who's gracious and who's worked in my life and has changed me. I didn't do that. I didn't respond at all. I blew it, and I've asked the Lord to forgive me for this, uh, but I missed an opportunity. And what strikes me about Daniel and Joseph and Peter and Paul is they don't miss those opportunities when they have opportunity to give God the credit for something that he's done in their lives, they take that opportunity and they're very clear about <clears throat> who is doing what. They're very clear about God's power and God's grace working in their weakness and in their circumstances. So two things, a life of prayer and praise, that reflects a not be God heart. Giving credit to God when God deserves the credit uh, also, deserve, uh, also, I think, reveals uh, not me, God, heart. And I think as we wrap it up here, I just want to say something quickly about the outcome, how this turned out for Daniel and his friends. Uh, you can see it there at the end of chapter 2. We didn't read it, so maybe flip over in your Bibles to chapter 2 and verse 46. <clears throat> Daniel uh, is able to recount the dream because God's shown it to him, and he's able to give the king an interpretation. And it says in 246, then, 
King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. <laughs> I kind of wonder how Daniel handled that, but the text doesn't tell us. Uh, the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel <clears throat> and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So Daniel's not-me-God attitude results in uh, his promotion and in the promotion of his friends, and he gets a position of power and influence. But let's be careful. It doesn't always turn out that way. We can have a not-me-God attitude, and things turn out uh, completely the opposite. And I'll just show you one uh, place that <clears throat> lets us know that they can uh, turn out the opposite of that. Go with me over to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, <clears throat> of course, the famous uh, recounting of some of the Old Testament heroes of the faith. And so in Hebrews 11, as the writer begins to uh, wrap up his list, uh, he realizes that he's running out of time or space. Probably I need to realize the same uh, right now. Uh, Hebrews 11, verse 32, the writer says, <clears throat> What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel, and the prophets, these are all not me, God people. These are heroes in the Old Testament who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. That would be Daniel himself, of course. Quenched the power of fire, Daniel's friends, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, uh, put foreign armies to flight. <clears throat> Women received back their dead by resurrection. And at that point, you just kind of think the writer of Hebrews realizes that he's painting a picture that he doesn't want to paint. He's telling all these stories where the circumstances turned out, if you will, you know, well. Things went well for the not-me-God people. He continues there in the middle of verse 35. And others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection and others experienced mockings and scourgings yes chains and imprisonment they were stoned they were sawn in two they were tempted they were put to death with the sword they went about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute afflicted ill-treated men <clears throat> of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains in caves and holes in the ground so not me, God, people, yeah, sometimes they get promoted and sometimes they get to rule at the king's court and other times they get sawn in two and they get put to death and they are persecuted. What the Bible says is that in either case, whether it turns out this way or that way, not me, God, people are living in a way that brings eternal reward and that eventually those people will win because at the end of the day what God's looking for 
his people who bring him glory and honor him with their prayer and with their testimony to others and people that look to put him first and he will always uh, reward uh, those people for the uh, way that they live. So our, my challenge to me and to us is this, this week, let's live as not me God people. Let's live as people who put God front and center, who realize our own weakness and our own need of him, who pray and praise and ask him to give us help day by day and not trust in our own resources, our own experience, <clears throat> our own wisdom. And when, by the grace of God, others see in us things that God has done, let's be sure that he gets uh, the credit. Let me pray for us, and we'll be done this morning. Father, your word uh, paints a picture of us so often, before us so often, of what uh, our lives with you are to be like, uh, what you've offered us, the, the adventure of Uh, living life in close fellowship with you, depending on you, trusting in you, not leaning on ourselves or on our own abilities or our own uh, experience. And I'll admit, Father, there are times when I choose to live life one way and times when I choose to live it another. I pray for your help. I pray for your mercy. I pray for your forgiveness. I pray for us this week that we would be people who are confident in who you are and in what you can do far exceeding beyond all that we ask or think and that we would have little confidence in ourselves that we would depend on you and recognize that apart from you we can do nothing. I thank you for your word this morning and for the opportunity that we've had here to celebrate your goodness to us. And I pray for us this week that as we live in a world that needs to hear the good news about your son, you would uh, make us an aroma (coughs) of life uh, to those around us. Help us to uh, live lives that adorn the gospel and give us the boldness and the courage to give credit to you, and I pray you'd work through us to draw others to yourself. Pray, Father, uh, today, in Jesus' name, amen.